University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. What if you didn't know that you had been looking at things backwards your entire life? What if someone came along and told you that what you had always seen through your eyes was wrong? Would you believe them? This is the invitation of Jesus, to change our way of thinking and living. Jesus came to show us that we have turned the world backward or upside down, and he is in the process of turning it right side up or forward. We're in this series, Kingdom, through story, Jesus turns a backwards world in the right direction. We're examining the parables from the Gospel of Luke, seeing that Jesus is, in fact, changing our way of thinking and living. For this, we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 19. Now, it's important to know where we are coming from in order to understand where we are going. Remember, context is vital to the scriptural conversation. So Jesus has been having a conversation with the Pharisees. And while he's eating in their home, they got bent out of shape because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. In turn, to their indignant response, Jesus tells six parables. Some of these parables include the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, which we covered last week. And he calls the Pharisees out on their love of money. And Jesus says that that they cannot serve both God and their wealth. So Luke tells us that the Pharisees didn't take this well because it states in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So naturally, Jesus is going to tell another parable, which picks up in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. We have two contrasting characters. The first is a rich man. This is the Greek word pleusius, which means wealth or abundance. Jesus wants us to know just how rich he is by what he's wearing and the parties he throws. He's wearing purple and fine linen. This would have cost the average person two months' worth of wages. The purple dye came from the neck vein of a rare Mediterranean fish, and the linen would have come from the flax of the Nile River. So Jesus said that this man lived in luxury every day. Some other ways that you can translate it is he was wasting his days conspicuously on consumption, or joyously living in the splendor of every day, or feasting on the sumptuousness every day. The word lampros, it it means lived in luxury and ate marvelously and lavishly every meal every day. It's important to know that rich people in Jesus' day were very uncommon. About 90% of the population were poor, leaving 10% of the population who were considered to be the ruling elite, and they obtained 66% of the wealth. He's rich in every way possible. 
He is wealth is quite abundant. Even in, he lives in abundance. He cares not for the beggar that wishes to have the scraps from his trash heap outside his home. And so this is in stark contrast to the man that is called Lazarus. This beggar is poor, like poor, poor. Jesus said that Lazarus was covered in sores, and his sores were, as if they weren't painful enough, the street dogs came and licked his sores. That's gross. <laughs> and let's not forget that he waits outside the rich man's gates every single day, just hoping that the man's servants will throw out some trash that's filled with scraps. He wants just a crumb from this man's table. That's hunger. That's desperation. That's poverty. Lazarus is living in hell. Physically, his body is going through torment. Emotionally, he's burning from the inside. Socially, he lives in darkness. So Lazarus is living in hell on earth. And immediately, some of us can connect with Lazarus because either we have experiences experiencing now or we have experienced hell on earth. Whether it comes from relationships or friendships or work or family or school or society or politics or the church, whether it comes from the result of a race or nationality or sexuality or gender or economic status or political affiliation or age or station in life, many experience hell on earth. It is the torment that comes from fear and oppression and rejection and isolation and past choices or overbearing expectation. It's the pain that doesn't seem to let up. You feel it day after day, week after week, year after year. It's the hell of isolation, believing that there is no one to talk to, no one to listen to, no one in a network to care for you or to give you a hand up. It's the feeling of imprisonment, of captivity, of slavery, of no escape. You see, the, the, the feeling of living hell is very real for many people, mentally, emotionally, relationally, familially, economically, racially sexually, gender, physically, or spiritually. Lazarus is living hell on earth. And now we're going to discover another form of hell, the self-inflicted kind, because it says this in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This might not have struck us as we listened to this parable, but to those who listened to this parable for the first time, they would immediately grab their attention that this clear reversal of roles between Lazarus and the rich man See, to the first century hearers of this parable, they would not have assumed that the rich man was evil 
and that the poor man was righteous. On the contrary, wealth in the ancient world was often viewed as a sign of divine favor, while poverty was viewed as evidence of sin. So apparently there was a telecommunication between where Lazarus is and where the rich man is suffering in agony. And all this is taking place with this deep chasm described by Abraham and then narrated by Jesus. We should know that the rich man is experiencing agony. He's thirsty. He, he wants water to quench his very thirst, but he can't cross over this great chasm that's there. And in death, it hasn't even changed his perspective because he still believes that he deserves the place of prominence and Lazarus deserves the place of humility. That's why he instructs Abraham to tell Lazarus to just dip his finger in the water and place it in his mouth as if it would satisfy. You can almost translate his request as this, I'm thirsty, Abraham. Tell that boy to bring me something to drink. And Abraham tells him, there is this chasm between us. The rich man is now experiencing what I would call a self-inflicted hell. And this is identified in this exchange between the rich man and Lazarus when he says to him, remember that in your lifetime you had these good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted and you are in agony. What Abraham is describing is the result of this rich man's choices. The rich man is to blame for what he's experiencing. He experienced wealth, he experienced abundance, he experienced self-consumption and self-centeredness, and he chose his fate. Through endless arrogance and lack of compassion and his inability to recognize a fellow child of God who is living outside the gates of his home, he chose this hell for himself. And what he's experiencing at the expense and neglect of others is what he will not face in the age to come. His perpetual choices widen this chasm. Therefore, there is no water for his extreme thirst. Some might connect to this a little better. It's experiencing the hell of keeping up with the Joneses. Society has grabbed us by the proverbial neck and is choking out our existence with this intoxicating message that true life means more. More stuff, more wealth, more comfort, more for you. And so you might be living in financial hell because of the choices you have made. You're living in this state of suffering because you're convinced that you need to surround yourself with more, and more is bleeding you dry. And maybe your more is coming at the expense of other people, namely friends and family, the people closest to you. And why you gain more and more, others are getting less and less. See, sometimes our pursuit for, for more is a huge expense or cost towards others. We hurt others in the way that we never understand before it's too late. The damage is done to them and to us. But it says this in verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers, let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the Pharisees, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them and they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This rich man is clearly in anguish because he begins to think about his family, 
and not wanting them to experience what he's experiencing. And so clearly, he still doesn't get it because he still thinks Lazarus is his gopher to go do what he desires. And he wants Lazarus to go and proclaim this message, believing that maybe somebody resurrected would change their mind. And Abraham does not send Lazarus to warn the brothers because he can't. Because they've already been warned through the teachings of Moses and the prophets, and yet they didn't listen. The Old Testament is is chocked full of God calling the people to seek justice and to defend the case of the broken. Again and again, the people were judged in the Old Testament, not because they didn't worship God enough, but because with one hand they tried to worship God, and with the other hand they took advantage of the poor. Just read the prophets of Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Joel and Zechariah. But again, if they're not going to listen to God's law, why would they listen to a resurrected beggar? Their hearing and their hearts are hardened. So no, Lazarus is not going to resurrect and to warn them. They've chosen the self-inflicted hell for their lives. I wonder as we consider this parable, it's so strange, so frightening, so emotionally charged. So what can we take away from this parable? I think the key to understand this parable, and one of its most profound implications is found in verse 30 when it says, if someone come back to them from the dead, they would change their ways, the rich man said. Abraham replied, if they won't listen to Moses and to the prophets, they're not going to be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. You see, the key to this parable is resurrection, but not Lazarus's. You see, in just a matter of months, the one who is telling this parable will step foot into Jerusalem, and it will be the place that his very life will experience excruciating, agonizing, and hell-like experience. The Son of God will allow himself to be arrested, falsely accused, mocked, beaten, mutilated, and crucified for the world's sake. And for those experiencing hell on earth, and for those experiencing the hell they have created for others on earth, even the Pharisees that Jesus utters this parable to, Jesus experienced agony. It is in this act that Jesus would die. Yet it is in Jesus' resurrection that many will come to see that things must change, that life must be different, that the way that we have dealt in the world that we have created for ourselves is not what God has in mind. It's in Jesus' resurrection that we know that God has the power to transform us through God's love and our faith in God. It's in Jesus' death and resurrection that we discover what it means to look beyond oneself and to let love guide our life. It's God's love that led Jesus to experience the agony of the cross for our sake. And throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus resurrected people from the many forms of hell they were experiencing. Whether you are a demon-possessed man that was chained up outside of town, or the religious leaders caught up in their self-righteousness, or the leprous suffering from debilitating disease, or the outcast woman who was outcast in town because she slept around with so many people, the most hated tax collector, or the man whose child was dying. Jesus resurrected people from the hell they were experiencing. Jesus is in the business of resurrecting people from the hell they are experiencing 
emotionally and physically and economically and politically and racially and sexually and familially and spiritually. It is in this same gospel that Jesus declared, the Spirit has appointed me to preach good news to the poor, to recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. It's also Jesus who proclaims, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Even the name Jesus chose for the beggar in this story, Lazarus, points out God's desire to resurrect us from the hell we are experiencing. The name means God is my help. Now, what if I came to you after worship today, and I asked if I could buy your firstborn child? You, of course, would reject this notion, but what if I offered you $1,000? No? What if I offered you $10,000? What if I offered you $250,000? No? What if I offered you $3 million for your firstborn child? Is that a price that you're willing to take? I hope the answer is no. (laughs) And why? You see, love is something profound. Love is something immeasurable and invaluable. Love is more important than money and wealth. And the extreme nature of this parable is remarkable. It feels as though Jesus is asking us for something unfathomable. And maybe that is exactly the point. Whether it be experiencing hell on earth or the opposite, living life well financially and securely, Jesus is extending an invitation both to Lazarus and the rich man of the world. We've covered Lazarus and God's desire to resurrect us from the hell we're experiencing. So looking more closely at the rich man and the story, what is the invitation? Is it to abandon all of our wealth and comfort? No. We see other stories in the gospel in which Jesus encounters the super rich and doesn't ask them to do such a thing. This is not a parable condemning wealth. But what we do see in the gospels, specifically in the context of the conversation by which Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees, is that wealth can create a devotion that overshadows and outrules our commitment to God. That's why Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one or love the other, or he will devote himself to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice he didn't say, you cannot follow both God and have money. Jesus understands that many, the desire for comfort and security and control and wealth is never ending. So Jesus is inviting the rich man of the parable to something, a journey of faith that seems unfathomable. I love to cook. I've shared that with you many times, but occasionally one of my favorite meals to prepare for my family is charcuterie night. So we get these fine meats like prosciutto and salami and pepperoni and smoked salmon or five or six different kinds of cheeses, some small bell peppers, some kalamata olives and crackers. I'll grill sausage and portobello mushrooms and I'll make this big old bowl of guacamole. And it's fun to fill your plate with finger foods going back again and again. And yet, it never fails that when we make such a spread, so much goes to waste. 
The cheese might get moldy, the fine meats start to harden, the guacamole gets watery, and the crackers go stale. And all of this happens because we get more than we actually need to eat. Our eyes are bigger than our stomachs, as they would say. And eventually, it gets tossed out. And I cannot help but to think, how many of Baton Rouge's poor would love to have the crumbs from my table of excess? See, America stands in stark contrast to the rest of the world. Our table scraps alone are staggering. The U.S. government estimates that 27% of our country's consumable food ends up in a landfill. That's a pound of food per day for every American family. Supermarkets, restaurants, cafeterias, and the average family are all part of this culture of waste. And it's not a guilt-driven fact or solution. However, it's amazing how much little makes a difference. For example, if I had just cut back 5% of that meal and given the money to charity, I didn't need to cook all that food for this meal. Instead, I could have reduced by 5% and given that money away to someone else. Experts say that that recovery is just 5% of waste could feed 4 million people a day. Literally, the crumbs from our table of the unused leftovers could feed 4 million people a day. All of Jesus' parables were intended to give a kingdom meaning, and this parable is no different. Jesus is using the rich man to teach his audience, more specifically the Pharisees, about how the kingdom of God is counterculture to the kingdom of this world. And the world thinks out of abundance for self, but Jesus invites us to something different. Instead of crumbs from our table, Jesus invites us to give out of the abundance of our table. And I think we can think really simple and yet in profound ways about how we can make a difference. See, food donations to the U.S. Food Bank are down while demand is majorly up more than 40%. Commit to buying one or two cans of non-perishable food each week and donate those things to a local food pantry, but better yet, stick around and help serve those who are coming to receive it. Reduce the amount of food that you purchase for dinner and give the difference to a local ministry or or charity for feeding the poor. Have your kids participate by changing the culture within your children now that we don't have to live with so much excess and abundance. Contribute to the Benevolence Fund here at UBC, which gives our resources to provide the needs of Highland Elementary and MDO families that are in need. Eat leftovers for lunch at work instead of uh, going out. When you do, pray for those that are experiencing hunger on that day. Stop throwing away food, but instead come up with creative ways to reuse the food that you've already produced, or go in your pantry and Google how you can use what you do have in your pantry to make some sort of amazing recipe. You see, what I think Jesus desires for us is, not be, is to become consumed with his love, and since Jesus' love is for all things, and all things are transformed for his goodness, Jesus is in calling us to have direct and and quantifiable love for other people. God does not hold back God's blessing and God's grace in our life. Why then should we be less generous with our lives? 
Find ways to bless someone each day out of the abundance of what God has given you. And don't just give and run away, but let's find ways to take part in breaking the cycles that people experience in their life. Let's not find any more Lazaruses in our world. Don't become me-centered too when, when we give. It's easy for us to give in such a way so that other people will celebrate what we're done. But Jesus tells us to give in secret and to not let others know what we're doing. We're invited not to give a tenth of our resources for the kingdom of God, but to give our whole self to the work of the kingdom. But there's something much deeper going on here. With sports back in our life, it's, it's not hard to imagine what a competition looks like. But close your eyes for just a second, and imagine you're running a race on a football field. The race is from end zone to end zone. The race organizer has all the runners come into the end zone for the starting line, except when the race organizer places you in your lane, you quickly realize that you're not in the end zone, but you get to start at the 20-yard line. You have a 32-yard head start to the race. How do you feel about that? Would you run the race in such an uneven fashion? Would you go back maybe at least halfway, maybe to the eight-yard line? Would you go all the way back to the end zone where everyone else is? Better yet, how would you feel if you were running in the place of the end zone while everyone else got to start at the 20-yard line? What if I told you that the race you're actually running is the race of life? What if I told you that in reality, you are either a person getting to have a head start or you are a person lagging behind? Whether you like it or not, for many of us, because of where we grew up, because of who our parents were, of what their jobs afforded them, the schools we went to, the color of our skin, our gender or our ethnicity, the person we married, or the network afforded to us, we have a head start in life's race. Those are the facts that we cannot change. The challenge is what we do with those facts, what we do with our head start. And I think we would be blind in believing that Jesus told this parable just as a way of talking about charity to those who have excess in their lives. You see, when you put this parable in the context of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees about their religious holiness and the neglect for the poor, even more importantly, when you put this parable in the context of Jesus' ministry and message, then we come to see that Jesus is talking about something deeper and more challenging of the factors at work in our world. The reality is that too often we do not realize it or we ignore it, is that the gospel is God's justice against systematic problems. If Jesus wasn't talking about issues deeper than the Pharisees' disregard for the poor, then why did they become so indignant at the end of this parable? Why do the Gospels tell us that they began to plot to have Jesus killed? Why would Jesus die on a cross as a political and religious insurrectionist if his only message was, ask me into your heart and you will go into heaven? That sounds super easy 
and great for everyone. It's because the gospel goes so much deeper and is more powerful than we give it credit for. While we try to confine the experience felt in worship on Sunday morning, Jesus preached, lived, died, and resurrected and invites us into a gospel that takes on every possible system that denigrates human life. So this parable is about money and wealth, but it's also about economic injustice and classism and discrimination and power, which translates into sexism and homophobia and xenophobia and racism and ageism and classism and so much more. This parable is about the systems that push down others while lifting others up. And we don't like talking about it when a preacher preaches on such things. Again, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders' response to Jesus' condemnation of their way of life and disregard for other people in the name of their faith, we too don't want Jesus to threaten our comfort and our worldview. We want the Jesus that's easy, like asking him into our heart and going into heaven. But folks, that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Because the Jesus of the Gospels stood against and tore down the systematic issues of his day. And he desires for us to do the same. So what do we need to know in closing about this parable? I think we need to know that Jesus isn't joking around. God cares about how we treat other people. Jesus isn't joking around because he tells a parable of a man who experiences self-inflicted torment after death because he failed to love his neighbor as himself. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus is serious about living less for ourselves and more for the kingdom of God and for others. You see, Jesus actually told another parable with eternal implications in Matthew chapter 25, in which he says, God will bring all people unto God's self, and he will look at some and say, I was thirsty, hungry, naked, and homeless. You gave me food and drink, and you gave me a place to stay. And he will look at another group and say, I was hungry, thirsty, and naked, and homeless, and you did nothing for me. What Jesus is conveying to us is that how we treat other people matters. What is done to those experiencing hunger and thirst and nakedness and abandonment and imprisonment, we've either done for or against God. And maybe we should end with the powerful words of James. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 20 and verse 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no action. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have action. Show me your faith without action, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? 
As the body without a spirit is dead, so faith without actions is dead.